Morning, folks. When Ronald Reagan was shot on March 30th, 1981, a time of chaos ensued behind the scenes there in the White House. Um, it was not a, they really didn't have a contingency plan. They didn't have a, if this happens, sort of uh, plan of action, an, an SOP, if you will, in, in place for if the president gets shot exactly, precisely, what are we going to do? Uh, and for that reason, there was a fair bit of chaos there behind, behind the scenes. And so in the midst of that, some of you uh, may have read about this, or maybe you've seen videos or, or whatever. Maybe some of you lived it. Uh, in, in the midst of that, there was a lot of improvisation going on amidst the, the White House staff and uh, those who in, in the in the cabinet. And one famous moment took place. You can, you can look at this. You can read about it. It's 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 well documented. Uh, Al Haig, Al Haig, the Secretary of State. Uh, standing there with a microphone in front of him in the midst of a room of reporters says, I'm in control here. Now, you might be thinking to yourself, if you've forgotten about the Constitution and the line of succession, what's the problem with that? The problem is the Secretary of State is not next in line in the succession according to our Constitution. So this throws just a little bit of craziness and chaos, even more chaos, into the confusion. Now, Haig, just to, you know, look quick aside, he said, that's, you got to understand context and what I mean. Okay, that's fine. But nonetheless, in the moment, in the moment, it was confusing. And it threw all the more uh, fuel into the, the, the chaos, if you will, at the time. Uh, confusion, especially regarding rule and authority. Confusion regarding rule and authority. Who is, in fact, in charge? Well, that brings us to where we're heading now in Judges, pushing on through our, our series here in this book. Uh, this, we're going to get into a text here, a long text here in just, just a second, that certainly brings forth the theme of confusion regarding rule and authority. Who's in charge? Who's in control here? Uh, I guess you could put it that way. Uh, now, just so as a reminder or a fresher as to where we are, uh, this is the time in Israel's history after the Exodus, okay? So the deliverance of God's people, they have left, been brought out of Egypt. They have been brought into the land of Canaan, a time of conquest, but it's before the establishment of the monarchy, okay? So it's kind of, if you will, between Moses and David. There's several hundred years in there, and this is a time of intense confusion, a lot of concern, chaos, if you will, regarding who's in charge, rule, and authority. Uh, if you've got a Bible, we're going to be reading. You can see there on the screen, uh, and that's not a typo. Uh, that's Judges 8.29 all the way, that's right, 5.7, uh, Judges 9.57, okay? So settle in, buckle up. Uh, we're going to be uh, reading for just a I'm going to give you some pointers, some, some landmarks as we go to kind of break it up, okay? Because I know it is going to feel a little long as we go. Uh, but we're reading through Judges chapter 8, 20, chapter 8, verse 29. It's the very end of chapter 8. On through the very end of chapter 9, verse 57. And again, I'll break it up as we go, just to kind of give you some markers. But we will start here with 8.29. Jerubbabel, the son of Joash, went and lived in his own house. Now Gideon had 70 sons, his own offspring, but he had many wives... And his concubine, who was in Shechem, 
also bore him a son, and he called his name Abimelech. And Gideon, the son of Joash, died in a good old age and was buried at the tomb of Joash, his father, at Ophrah of the Abiezrites. As soon as Gideon died, the people of Israel turned again and whored after the Baals and made Baal Barith their god. And the people of Israel did not remember the Lord their God, who had delivered them from the hand of all their enemies on every side. And they did not show steadfast love to the family of Jerubbaal, that is Gideon, in return for all the good that he had done in Israel. Now count that as something of a prologue. That has just set the stage for everything that is coming. Okay, that's the foundation. That's the setting, the context of everything that's coming. Now we're going to move into chapter 9, verses 1 through 6, and we're going to read here of the treachery of Abimelech, you just heard about. We're going to read about the treachery of Abimelech and a town called Shechem. All right? Now Abimelech, the son of Jerubbaal, went to Shechem to his mother's relatives and said to them and to the whole clan of his mother's family, say in the ears of all the leaders of Shechem, which is better for you, that all 70 of the sons of Jerubbaal rule over you? or that one rule over you. Remember also that I am your bone and your flesh. And his mother's relatives spoke all these words on his behalf in the ears of all the leaders of Shechem. And their hearts inclined to follow Abimelech, for they said, he is our brother. And they gave him 70 pieces of silver out of the house of Baal Barit, with which Abimelech hired worthless and reckless fellows who followed him. And he went to his father's house in Ophrah, and killed his brothers, the sons of Jerubbaal, 70 men on one stone. But Jotham, the youngest son of Jerubbaal, was left, for he hid himself. And all the leaders of Shechem came together, and all bait Milo, and they went and made Abimelech king by the oak of the pillar at Shechem. All right, so that's the treachery of Abimelech and Shechem. Now, that's verses 1 to 6, verses 7 to 21 is a curse. Given what's taken place, a curse is pronounced on both Abimelech and Shechem, the man and the town, okay? So that's verses 7 to 20 through 21. Here we go. When it was told to Jotham, that's the youngest son of Gideon, when he, went, when he was told to Jotham, he went and stood on top of Mount Gerizim and cried aloud and said to them, Listen to me, you leaders of Shechem, that God may listen to you. The trees once went out and to anoint a king over them. And they said to the olive tree, reign over us. But the olive tree said to them, shall I leave my abundance by which gods and men are honored and go hold sway over the trees? And the trees said to the fig tree, you come and reign over us. But the fig tree said to them, shall I leave my sweetness and my good fruit and go hold sway over the trees? And the trees said to the vine, you come and reign over us. But the vine said to them, shall I leave my, my wine that cheers God and men and gold sway, go hold sway over the trees? Then all the trees said to the bramble, you come and reign over us. And the bramble said to the trees, if in good faith you are anointing the king, me king over you, then come and take refuge in my shade. But if not, let fire come out of the bramble and devour the cedars of Lebanon. Now, therefore, if you acted in good faith and integrity when you made Abimelech king, and if you have dealt well with Jerubbaal and his house and have done to him as his deeds deserved, for my father fought for you and risked his life and delivered you from the hand of Midian, 
and you have risen up against my father's house this day and have killed his sons, 70 men on one stone, and have made Avimelech, the son of his female servant, king over the leaders of Shechem, because he is your relative, if you then have acted in good faith and integrity with Jerubbaal and with his house this day, then rejoice in Avimelech, and let him also rejoice in you. But if not, let fire come out from Avimelech and devour the leaders of Shechem and Beit Milo, and let fire come out from the leaders of Shechem and from Beit Milo and devour Avimelech. And Jotham ran away and fled and went to Beir and lived there because of Avimelech, his brother. All right, so we have the treachery of Avimelech and Shechem. We have the curse pronounced upon Avimelech and Shechem. Now we see next for the rest of the chapter as it unfolds, the results of this, the judgment, this curse unfolding, the judgment on the man Avimelech and the town Shechem. All right, so this takes us to the end of the chapter. Verse 22, Avimelech ruled over Israel three years, and God sent an evil spirit between Avimelech and the leaders of Shechem, and the leaders of Shechem dealt treacherously with Avimelech, that the violence done to the 70 sons of Jerubbaal might come, and their blood be laid on Avimelech, their brother, who killed them, and on the men of Shechem, who strengthened his hands to kill his brothers. And the leaders of Shechem put men in ambush against him on the mountaintops, and they robbed all who passed by them along that way. And it was told to Avimelech. And Gaal, the son of Evid, moved into Shechem with his relatives. And the leaders of Shechem put confidence in him. And they went out from the field and gathered the grapes from their vineyards and trod them and held a festival. And they went into the house of their God and ate and drank and reviled Avimelech. And Gaal, the son of Evid, said, Who is Avimelech? And who are we of Shechem that we should serve him? Is he not the son of Jerubbaal, and is not Zebel his officer? Serve the men of Hamor, the father of Shechem. But why should we serve him? Would that this people were under my hand. Then I would remove Avimelech. I would say to Avimelech, increase your army and come out. When Zebel, the ruler of the city, heard the words of Gaal, the son of Ebed, his anger was kindled. And he sent messengers to Avimelech secretly, saying, Behold, Gaal, the son of Evan, and his relatives have come to Shechem, and they are stirring up the city against you. Now therefore, go by night, you and the people who are with you, and set an ambush in the field. Then in the morning, as soon as the sun is up, rise early and rush upon the city. And when he and his people who are with him come out against you, you may do to them as your hand finds to do. So... Avimelech and all the men who were with him rose up by night and set an ambush against Shechem in four companies. And Gaal, the son of Evid, went out and stood in the entrance of the gate of the city, and Avimelech and the people who were with him rose from the ambush. And when Gaal saw the people, he said to Zebul, Look, people are coming down from the mountaintops. And Zebul said to him, You mistake the shadow of the mountains for men. Gaal spoke again and said, Look, people are coming down from the center of the land, and one company is coming from the direction of the diviner's oak. Then Zebul said to him, Where is your mouth now, you who said, Who is Abimelech, that we should serve him? Are not these the people whom you despised? Go out now and fight with them. And Gaal went out at the head of the leaders of Shechem and fought with Abimelech, and Abimelech chased him, and he fled before him. And many fell wounded up to the entrance of the gate. And Avimelech lived at Aruma, 
And Zebul drove out Gaal and his relatives so that they could not dwell at Shechem. On the following day, the people went out into the field, and Abimelech was told. He took his people and divided them into three companies and set an ambush in the fields. He looked and saw the people coming out of the city, so he rose against them and killed them. Abimelech and the company that was with him rushed forward and stood at the entrance of the gate of the city while the two companies rushed upon all who were in the field and killed them. And Abimelech fought against the city all that day. He captured the city and killed the people who were in it. And he raised the city and sowed it with salt. When all the leaders of the tower of Shechem heard of it, they entered the stronghold of the house of El-Barit. Abimelech was told that all the leaders of the tower of Shechem were gathered together. And Abimelech went to Mount Zalman, he and all the people who were with him. And Abimelech took an axe in his hand and cut down a bundle of brushwood and took it up and laid it on his shoulder. And he said to the men who were with him, what, have you, what do you have seen me do? Hurry and do as I have done. To every one of the people, so every one of the people cut down his bundle and following Abimelech put it against the stronghold and they set the stronghold on fire over them so that all the people of the tower of Shechem also died, about 1,000 men and women. Then Abimelech went to Thebes and encamped against Thebes and captured it. But there was a strong tower within the city, and all the men and women and all the leaders of the city fled to it and shut themselves in it. And they went up to the roof of the tower. And Abimelech came to the tower and fought against it and drew near to the door of the tower to burn it with fire. And a certain woman threw an upper millstone on Abimelech's head and crushed his skull. And he called quickly to the young man, his armor bearer, and said to him, draw your sword and kill me, lest they say of me, a woman killed him. And his young man thrust him through and he died. And when the men of Israel saw that Abimelech was dead, everyone departed to his home. Thus God returned the evil of Abimelech which he committed against his father in killing his 70 brothers. And God also made all the evil of the men of Shechem return on their heads. And upon them came the curse of Jotham, the son of Jerubal. Well, we have a little time left. So maybe we should pray. And I ask for the Lord's leading on this time. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you. Thank you for this time. Uh, thank you for working in the midst of all of this chaos that we see here unfolding in this passage, in this period of history. Thank you that you are working now in the chaos of our days, in the chaos of our lives, where uh, around us, there seems to be a question mark as to rule and authority, even within us, within our own hearts. We would have to say there is that question. We call you Lord. We profess it. But, but is that really where our heart is? Jesus, would you please have mercy upon us now? You, the one who inspired by your spirit, this text to be written, to be preserved, and now allowing us this time here to uh, hear it. Would you help us to really hear it? We pray. Amen.
So if you go on the NASA website, there are five hazards, five basic hazards that are listed if you're curious as to what is entailed in spaceflight in general. Five hazards that NASA lists on its website. Here they are. The first is simply radiation. The second is isolation. The third is the sheer distance from the earth. The fourth is gravity fields. And the fifth is hostile and closed environments. Any one of those five is incredibly daunting. So much so that you would have to say to even speak of, to even think of, to even contemplate traveling out to the moon and back, which you may know we're planning on doing in the next few years, yet again, sending manned missions you know, back there, to there and back, uh, is, is a daunting proposition. There's, the, the dangers are intense just externally for the spacecraft and the crew as they go out and hope to come, come back. Now, here's the question, though. What if, what if you've got dangers not just on the outside but in the inside? What if you've got problems not just externally but internally? What if you've got problems within the spaceship itself? Now, surely we know NASA's, you know, thinking in terms of that, planning in terms of that, designing, hoping to prevent that in this, you know, next series of missions. But, you know, that's exactly what happened. If you remember something of your history, going back to April 1970 with Apollo 13. It was a, a well-known movie just a few years ago, Tom Hanks and, and some others, where some 200,000 miles, can you get your head around that distance? 200,000 miles a few days out into the mission, one of the two oxygen tanks explodes. They're in knocking out their power, their water supply, and their light. No wonder Jim Lovell calls back to Houston and says, Houston, we've had a problem here because they've got danger not just on the outside, now they've got problems on the inside. And that's what we see here in our text in Judges. Dangers, problems, hazards are not just without, they can come from within. You'll note here in, in Judges 9, this is a period in the, in the flow of the book of Judges. It's unlike, you know, Will and I have been talking about this, these cycles that you see here again and again and again through the book of Judges, right? So the, the people fall into idolatry. The Lord allows uh, foreign oppressors, invaders, nations from the outside to come in. An oppression takes place. Ta some period of time goes by. They cry out to him. And he, in his love and his mercy, sends a judge, sends a deliverer. They are rescued. And then there's a period of, of shalom, peace again. Okay, this is outside the cycle because there's no foreign oppressor. Do you notice that? There is no foreign invader in Judges 9. The problem of Israel is Israel. The problem of God's people is God's people. The problem of the church is the church. That's what you see here in Judges 9. The dangers are not just without, they are within. They're not just external, they are internal. The dangers are all around us and, if you will, within us at the same time, which points us to all the more for a need, oh my goodness, as though we didn't see it before, the need for a deliverer, the need for a redeemer, the need for a savior, the need for a defender, the need for a real judge, deliverer, capital J, king, uppercase K, Jesus. That this whole mess that we're reading of here in Judges 9 and the whole book, he's, he's preparing the way, pointing the way 
for the one true judge, the one true deliverer, the better king to, to come. It's really what we're seeing here. It's really what we're seeing here in this, in this passage. The, the Lord alone is our deliverer. The Lord alone is our deliverer. We must then, we must then wholeheartedly trust and turn to him. He alone is our deliverer. He alone is our deliverer. We must then wholeheartedly trust and turn to him. Now, how do we see that? How do we see these, this element of, of the need to trust and turn to him? Well, at least in two ways. And obviously with a text this long, and I've only got you know, just a little bit of time to even talk about it, um, we're, I'm doing a big, big flyover here. I'm not getting into details. I'm not getting, really getting into minutia of the passage. This is a big picture here in what you're, we're seeing here, but that's well worth doing. And so the first way we see the need to trust and turn to the Lord is in, in two words, if you will. A word of warning that is given and a word of hope that is offered. A word of warning that is given and a word of hope that is offered. So first, the word of, of warning. Uh, you, we start with, with Jotham's parable. Remember that? It was, it was kind of about a third of the way through. Jotham, the youngest son of, of Gideon, the guy who ran and hid, and he's, hiding, he, he's standing there. He's standing there on this, this hillside, and he's calling out in the acoustics. If you, you could go that part of the world, you could see the acoustics would allow for this. This is not crazy. The acoustics would allow for him because he's standing on one hill. The Shechem is down in the valley, and then there's another hill, another mount just on the other side. So the acoustics allow for this, and he is pronouncing, calling out to, to the people to listen to him. He tells a story. He tells a story, the, the story of these talking trees. Now, these are not ants, sadly. These are not ants, and, and maybe this is a clue that when you hear, except with Tolkien, when you hear talking trees, it's a problem. It's, you've got a problem, and certainly we do here. So the story, though, I'm not going to revisit re, uh, it again, but just re, keep in mind what he's after here, what he's telling, getting at here is the foolishness of the trees and the worthlessness of the brambles, all right? The foolishness of the trees, these are the main points of his story, the foolishness of the trees and the worthlessness of the bramble. You, you know, you've got the, um, the olive tree, the fig tree, and the vine. Those are all fruit-bearing. So they're great to have. They're fruit-bearing. The bramble, what does that give you? No fruit. It provides no fruit. It provides no shade, no protection. It's kind of funny that he says, he says the, the bramble says, come and get under my shade. There is no shade with bramble. That's a non sequitur. Um, so there is no fruit. There is no shade. The only thing that bramble is really good for is, and this is interesting, burning. Well, that's interesting as we see the narrative unfold. So the, the idea, the point here being that Jotham is not, and hence the Lord is not, speaking to the foolishness, the wrongheadedness of kingship in itself, but rather the foolishness, the wrongheadedness of this king. Because he's not qualified in any way at all. He's a bramble king. So the narrator then would have us to understand how this comes about. What in the world is going on with you people there in Shechem? Why would you run towards, settle for a bramble king? What's going on here? What's going on within the hearts of the people? Well, the narrator tells us in the prologue. Remember how I said that was kind of the, the, the first few verses set the tone for everything, the foundation of everything that's coming? Let's go back and look at that. Verses 33 to 35, the very beginning of, well, almost the very beginning of what we read. 
As soon as Gideon died, the people of Israel turned again and whored after the Baals and made Baal Barit their God. And the people of Israel did not remember the Lord their God, who had delivered them from the hand of all their enemies on every side. And they did not show steadfast love to the family of Jerubal, that is Gideon, in return for all the good that he had done to Israel. The deep roots here of their foolishness is they did not remember the Lord. That's not to say they forgot who he was. That's not what that means. And it's not to say necessarily that they forgot what he did, but rather it had no claim. What they knew in their head had no claim on their heart. They were not committed to what they knew, to what they confessed, to what they said was true, their own history. It didn't affect them. What they knew intellectually did not affect them. It made no difference. So they did not remember the Lord. And you could say in, in essence with that, they did not remember Gideon, what he had done. And those two things are intertwined, interrelated, as is their fall right back into idolatry, worship in false gods, false hopes, false loves, false aims, false goals, all of, of that. It's all connected. That's the deep roots of this foolishness, which then bears forth this horrific fruit. What kind of fruit? Fire. You wanted a bramble king. What are you going to get? Fire. Fire coming from all directions. Fire going in all directions. This is not a garden spot. This is a forest fire. You can hardly breathe because of the smoke. You know, coming down from Canada, not here. Now it's just there. There in the, the area of Shechem. Fire and destruction. I'm reminded, you know, going back to Reagan, uh, reminded of, and, and uh, the Apollo program. So the, the Cold War, there was, there was a thing that regarding um, MAD, MAD, mutually assured destruction because of the, the two superpowers, the U.S. and the Soviet Union, regarding the nuclear war. MAD, MAD, mutually assured destruction. That's what you, that's what you have here with uh, uh, both um, this Bramble King Abimelech and this town, these people there in, in Shechem. That you could put it this way, they deserve one another. They deserve one another, and in so they devour one another. It's, it's, it's absolutely horrific what, what you see unfolding here. I mean, real, you know, corpses, bodies, women, children, men. It's meant to serve as a warning. This is a cautionary tale. It's real, but it's a cautionary tale. Then and, and now, be wary. Be wary of where you put your trust. Be wary of in whom you put your trust. Yes, I know. In essence, the narrator's saying to us here, yes, I know your situation, reader, seems dire. And it, you feel desperate. But be careful, be wary of the help that you lay your hand on. We need to hear this too. Ralph Davis, in his commentary in the book of Judges, illustrates this principle by calling the reader back to the 1930s and the terrible mistake that the German people made in failing to, to be critically thinking in terms of what Adolf Hitler was saying and the madness, the insanity, really, of what he was saying. But they got swept up in that. These are smart people, perhaps the smartest people on the globe in the 1930s, doing really stupid things. 
falling prey for evil, foolish things. That's not that long ago, the 1930s. Not in the grand scheme of things, but let me, let me, if I may, if I may, come a little closer to where we are, a little closer to home. And this may upset some of you, but I think this is worth pointing out. 1970s, 80s, and 90s, and early 2000s. Some of you may have seen a documentary. It's on Amazon Prime right now called Shiny Happy People. And it's, it's recounting the rise of a movement within Western evangelicalism, the church, here. Some of you may be familiar with Bill Gothard. And it was a movement that began with a desire in a context where it seemed like everything was going wrong. So much disorder, so much chaos in the culture and in the church and in the family. So what do we need? We need order. We need rule. We need discipline. We need authority. And that's what Gothard brought, if you will, to the table. And there was, so there was this longing for a restoration. But, but and please don't hear me. I'm not drawing a moral equivocation between Bill Gothard and Adolf Hitler. That's not my point. I'm just simply saying that the root, the root of, in your desperation, be careful of where you reach for deliverance. Be careful of where you reach out towards for deliverance. Don't seek out a bramble king. You will have nothing but burning in the end. Nothing but burning in the end. We need leaders. That, the point of the text is not to say, well, just whatever. That's not the point. I mean, the Lord in his mercy at this time in Israel's history was preparing his people for the time of the monarchy. One of the offices, one of the, the, the roles of the Messiah, the Christ, Jesus, is to be the king. So this is not speaking against the idea of our need of rule and authority, but rather, rather pointing that, to the need to, to pay heed to what God has said in terms of character qualities for who would rule and who would be in authority. To not give in to our desperate um, panic and then reach out for a bramble king. But it would raise a question, a heart's question, before we move on to the second point, and that is this. Why are we desperate? So it's, it's, it's not just a warning like, don't do this, like, don't reach out for the Bramble King, but it raises a question. Why are you tempted to do that? Why are you desperate? God is the deliverer. He is our, our, our rescuer. We've been singing about this all morning. I don't know if you picked up on that. The theme of the songs, the reading from Daniel, the reading from Colossians, you all said yay and amen. God's people there in Judges 9 ostensibly would have said yay and amen. Why are we desperate? In whom are we trusting? In whom are we trusting? The Lord alone is our deliverer. We need to trust and turn to him, which takes us to our second point. I'll press here. Not just the word of warning, but a word of hope that may seem strange because you're, well, how is there hope in this? I mean, it's nothing but smoke and ash by the time the story is done. I mean, isn't God, isn't he absent here? Where is God? Where is the Lord here? It may seem like judgment, like God himself is, is gone, checked out. Elvis has left the building. No Lord. Well, actually, interestingly enough, you don't see Lord, capital L-O-R-D, 
Yahweh, Jehovah. You don't see any mention of the Lord at any point in Judges 9, which is a clue. It's a clue of the state of the relationship between God and his people, the extent to which they have turned their back from him, ignored him, tried to go on doing life without him. Now that said, uh, twice we do have a mention of God as the creator God, the powerful God, the mighty God over all nations, over all peoples, over all things, God. You see this in verses 23 through 24. Uh, God sent an evil spirit between Abimelech and the leaders of Shechem, and the leaders of Shechem dealt treacherously with Abimelech that the violence done to the 70 sons of Jerubbabel might come and their blood be laid on Abimelech, their brother, who killed them, and on the men of Shechem, who strengthened his hands to kill his brothers. And then the very end, the epilogue, the summary, telling you in case you missed it, this is why all this happened. Verses 56 and 57. Thus God returned the evil of Abimelech, which he committed against his father in killing his 70 brothers. And God also made all the evil of the men of Shechem return on their heads, and upon them came the curse of Jotham, the son of Jerubbaal. It seemed like judgment is absent. It seemed like God is absent, but it's not that at all. He's present, but quietly so. Quietly so. And judgment was working itself out, even in that context. Judgment was not absent. It was actually present. Evil was being destroyed, even in that time. Evil was finding itself being destroyed. As, as, as one author, I put it this way, Put it this way that I was reading this past week. There is no fellowship within evil. There is no cohesion within evil. The, if you will, the molecules don't adhere to one another within evil. It keeps flying apart. It, it's, it's like sharks, a feeding frenzy of sharks when one of them is bleeding and they attack that one and you have a feed and it's just, it's, it's, yeah, evil will destroy itself even in this present age because of the way that God has made the, the moral fabric of the universe. It cannot sustain itself even now, even today, even in this, this age. And it can come about even through the ordinary, which is what we see here. The ordinary things happening here. Alienation, one party from another. And again, a mutual devouring one of another, Shechem and um, Abimelech. Judgment is present. Even in this age, partial at least, in this age, it can and does often come. And typically through ordinary means. But here's, here's even better news. Not just judgment is present, but judgment is coming. And this, too, this, is, this is good news. This is part of the word of hope. Not just that God is present and judgment is present, not, but also, even more so, God is, judgment is coming. We have a defender. And that's made very clear in this passage, especially the, if you look at the prologue and the epilogue. We have a defender who is the polar opposite of Avimelech. Everything Avimelech was, our defender, our judge, our ruler, our king, our redeemer, our defender, is not. Is not. He does not raise himself up, but is raised up by the Lord. He does not bring chaos 
but rather shalom, rest. He does not bring death, but life, flourishing. He is not the enemy, which really Avimelech was. Avimelech is the enemy of his own people. The greater judge, Jesus, the greater deliverer, Jesus, is anything but the enemy of his people. He is a savior of his people. It's worth knowing here yet again, this is the second time we see an enemy of God's people in the book of Judges getting their head crushed, which is hard. an echo going back to Genesis 3, the promise made right from the start that a seed of the woman was coming to crush the head of Satan. And this is an echo, a, reverb, a reverberation through the pages of history. We see it right here. We see it right here. We have a defender and we have an assurance of his coming. Not just, again, not just a present and partial destruction of evil, a doing away with evil, a crushing of the enemy's head, but a, a complete coming, full, full crushing where all the wrongs, all the wrongs in this world will be made right. All the wrongs in this world will be made right. And that is good news. That is good news. If you've been, if you have, I, I don't know how, how many birthdays it takes to live in this world to know that this is good news, that one day all that is wrong in this world will be made right. It's not just that God is a God of love that is, God, that is good news, but also that God is a God of justice is good news. I'm gonna sound a little snarky when I put it this way, but there, you, could, you could go so far as to say the good news of hell, the good news of eternal judgment. Now you say, you're nutso, you're, that's absurd, that's crazy talk. What in the world, how could that be? That's impossible. I would just say that if you can't visualize that possibly being good news to this world full of injustice and evil, then you are living, I say this with all due respect, you are living in the luxury of never having faced evil, of never having stared hate in the eye, of never truly being oppressed and rejected and persecuted. Our brothers and sisters around this globe would say good news good news to not only a God of love, but a God of justice who one day is going to make things not just new, but right. That is good news that he has come. He has come and is coming again. He has come and is coming again. Friends, we do not live in a secular universe. That's good news where everything is measured, where everything can be counted. Where you can, you can, if, if, you, if you can't see it, then it's not there. It's not real. We live in the world of Judges, Judges 9. That's the same world we live in. God is real. He reveals himself. He speaks. He can be known. He is our one true deliverer. And he therein, we must, we must be wholeheartedly trusting and turning to him. Now, let me land the plane. Let me uh, end it with this, simply this, this idea. We love a hero. We all do. We love a hero. How do I know that? Think back to your childhood. Think about your most cherished stories growing up. The, the noble character, the virtuous person, man or woman, or creature, 
who, who rescues someone else. It, you're, 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 that was your favorite. Or gracious sakes, Harrison Ford is 80 years old and is still cracking the whip as Indiana Jones. We love a hero. We love a hero. Or think in terms of, of box office receipts. I had to look this up. I couldn't believe this. In the Marvel Cinematic Universe, since 2007, there have been 23 movies made. The rival, Detective Comics Extended Universe, the DCEU, since 2011, there have been 15 films. Now, some of them are far better than others, to say the least. But here's basically the way it works. As far as fans are concerned, if you film it, they will come. Why? Because we love a hero. We love a hero. Why do we love a hero? Because we need one. There's something down in the basement. There's something down deep within every human being. There's something that we know intuitively, instinctively, viscerally, we need one. So much so that even when it's portrayed halfway good on a screen, in a tale, a comic book, there's just something in us that, that's drawn to it. It's just drawn to it. Jesus is the source of that pull. He is the hero of the heroes, the one our hearts long and are looking for. The resolution to this craziness that we see here in the book of Judges. He alone is our deliverer. Oh, may we wholeheartedly trust and turn to him. Can we pray? Lord, yours, what we have here before us in this passage is a messy history. It's not, it's not pleasant to read. We read again and again and again the narrative, the history of your initiative, your mercy, your grace, your love, taking that first step towards us, and then this horribly poor response. And if we're honest, we see that messy history played out with your people hundreds of years ago, reflected all the time in so many different ways in our own lives. As you have taken initiative, you have moved towards us, and our response just doesn't square with that. Jesus, we need the word of warning and the word of hope. And you know where every one of us is here this morning, the degree to which we need one or the other. We ask that you please, where we need the warning, where we, where in desperation, we're reaching out for the wrong deliverer. And Jesus, where we need this word of hope, mm, a God of love, 
and a God of justice, a real true deliverer, a real true rescuer, rescuer, the one that we really need. Not some fanciful made up one, but the one that we really need and who's really real. Jesus, would you please help us even this week to daily, daily be looking to you, depending upon you in every aspect of our lives. Thank you for your deliverance. In your name we pray. Amen.